Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. For those of you that have ears to hear what we've been talking about, it's effectively pages 25 to 26, which culminate in this notion again of the umbigriff, the non-concept, and this weird footnote on page 26 that we touched upon about the difference between the negation of the German un and the one implicit in the French and I don't know if I'm pronouncing either of those correctly. I don't care. So it's referenced again in our readings on page 43. This notion of the unbegriff comes up again, or begriff of the original, which in German means concept. It comes from the German root for to grasp. You also get the word grip out of griff and also graft. But these are all um, from the German to grasp. When you have a concept of something, unbegriff, it's um, it's a um, a grasping of something. Unbegriff is to like release, also, if you want to think of it that way. But it's the un here that that has Lacan interested. Namely, he says on forty three at the top, the cut. That is also what is at stake on 26, which he ramps up to in what I think is a really terrific discussion on page 25. It would be terrific if we just wanted to read 25 and 26 together, but there's also other really good stuff here that we've touched upon, even though we haven't referenced the passages. So on page 44, you get this emphatic German statement where it was, I must become. But bear in mind that the it in question is not exactly the id. And the ich in question is not exactly the ego that English translators would give us from Freud. So 44 to 45 is also lit. And I'm sure you've got some pages of your own. But per usual, let's pause for a second. You were just talking about uh, these images here, and I want to be sure that we get any follow-up questions answered before we take another turn, if we can. And if you all are good, I'm good with that, too. I see some something's happening in the chat. Hold on. Let's see what this is. Okay, got it. Yes. Oh, great. Thank you for the emphasis on, on Badiou counting. Yeah, he's a great counter. I just have a quick question. Go ahead. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, negative phi or minus phi. You said that it was the fourth element of the Oedipal Triad. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm looking here. Well, I see three and I'm confused where 
the that I see Nigrafia three, so I'm confused where the fourth, which one that is. Yeah, totally. So here would be one. There's two. There's the third, and this would be the fourth. Oh, got it. Okay. So I call Thank it a, I call it a square because when it's all said and done, you really do have this kind of quadrilateral structure. Yeah. And you can really read if you're if you like the clinical structure stuff, you can read it out of this, this understanding, this Lacanianism of the of the Oedipus complex. So it all turns on how this paternal function is performed. In the case of the neurotic, this is somebody who experienced a relatively consistent, cool, calm, collected enunciation of the no. This is somebody for whom the no of the father was pretty regularly and consistently executed and castration was achieved. In the case of the pervert, this is a no that didn't end with a period, but instead an exclamation point, perhaps. This is a, 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 a castration that was either too weak or too overdriven by the jouissance of the paternal figure. So this would be a no that is screamed at you. And now suddenly you don't follow the rules because the rules are just and make sense after many repetitive, cool, calm, and collected enunciations. Now you follow the rules because you fear the wrath of the rule giver. That's one of the conditions for perversion. And in the case of psychosis, this whole arrow, this whole third stage is utterly rejected. Freud says, and Lacan loves quoting him on this, that the psychotic subject doesn't want to know anything about this at the level of repression. It's not even repressed. You see, repression is a mechanism of neurosis. That's what the neurotic subject does with the third step here, this no of castration. It gets repressed. The psychotic doesn't repress the no of castration. The psychotic rejects the no of castration. It's not even there to be negated and eventually repressed. And that's the stage that the, that the neurotic would go through. There is this primordial symbolization at the level of the no, which is also what Lacan is doing with the, U, the UN in Unbegriff. It's also standing for the unary trait, this no that would emerge. That no is accepted by the neurotic. The German here again is Bejaun. That acceptance is then negated. So Freud has a really smart little essay on negation. And you can see Lacan responding to this in a creed. Hippolyte talks the whole class through negation. And then Lacan introduces and responds to Hippolyte, who's a great Hegelian scholar, on this topic of negation. Freud's essay is only like four or five pages, by the way. And here's how he illustrates negation. He says, um, so you're there in therapy. When the person says, um, you know, I had this dream the other night, or whatever the case, I forget what it was, you know, a tank rolling down the street. And, um, and, and, the, and then he turns to the therapist and says, I know what you're thinking, but it's not a dr dream about my mom. In order to negate that potential interpretation of the dream, 
the teller of the dream has to accept at a primordial level that that is a viable reading of the dream. In order for me to tell you that's not what it's about, I have to accept at some level that there's a very good chance you think that's exactly what it's about. Negation can only occur after a prior affirmation. This is Freud's insight. He's a great philosopher in this little essay. Affirmation, negation. What happens after negation is called repression. And in each case, there's a German term that, that Lacan likes to make a big fuss about in ways that in many times, <laughs> he's like borrowing a simple verb from Freud that doesn't actually support the incredible conceptual apparatus that Lacan builds atop it. Nevertheless, Lacan will then come along and be like, I'm just saying what, I'm just telling you what Freud said. It's like, bro, you went pretty far beyond what Freud did. You took a verb from Freud and, and really built something on it. Um, it's an interesting move that Lacan often makes where he claims he's just telling us what Freud said, but really in ways that are quite advanced beyond where Freud was. Um, it's a really interesting false humility on Lacan's part, but also a very entertaining one. Um, so that's how we get the square here um, and how, how that square plays out um, gives us each of the clinical structures of Lacanian psychoanalysis. What else you got? What else is on your mind at this point? The, uh, I've never heard him refer to the Lois War um, saying as here in the field of the dream, you are at home. Huh, I, mean, I know, right? That's the first time I've ever seen that. Yep. Have you seen it anywhere else? Like, what is he really speaking to there? Yeah, not, I have not seen it referred to as, as, a dream, as the dream place before. But the logic that Lacan is working with here is very much the same where the S, the it in Voisvar, where it was, it points to the real. Now, it's tough to say that because technically speaking, the real is an effect structure of the symbolic. So when you look at this number one up here, the hic et nunc, the here and now, don't think that that's the real. That's not the real. The animal kingdom that we occupied as infants before we became properly socialized ladies and gentlemen is not the real. The real is every part of embodied material existence that can't be metabolized at the level of the symbolic. It is what is ejected, kicked out, but in an extimate fashion from the symbolic. It's every part of reality that the symbolic can't quite account for. That's the real. The real wasn't there before the symbolic. The symbolic was always already there for us. And the real is the part of our lived embodied experience that we really can't account for with words, with language. So it's tough to say that where it was, I, as a symbolic split subject, ich, am supposed to become. It's tough to say that. Unless we grant a certain retroactivity here and say that it's where I am in the process of becoming that I'm able to find myself anew. Notice that emphasis on finding. 
The subject of psychoanalysis does not seek, it finds. The German is great in this way too. Phoebe Findensey, how do you find yourself? It's the same way as saying, what's up? How's it going? Where do you find yourself? Not surprisingly, Lacan got a lot of this from Heidegger. Being in time has a lot to do with the verb finden, to find. Where do you find yourself? That's what's up with Dasein. Where do you find yourself? Here, you find yourself where you were. And in psychoanalysis, as Lacan gets it from Freud, it's this retroactive process whereby talking it out with the therapist, you can come to terms with elements of your past and in so doing, transform them into the conditions of the present and the future into which you are moving. Now that's a little tricky, but what Lacan is saying is that when you enter into a psychoanalysis, you are trying to come to terms with your past and in so doing, transform it into your history. A history that you wouldn't change for the world because it's what made you who you are today and has paved the way for where you're heading tomorrow. And now with more knowledge and understanding of who you are, of what you are. So this process of transformation of one's past into one's history is fundamental to what Lacan thinks happens in psychoanalysis, getting back to the question of how you do this stuff. The analyst is listening for opportunities for the analyzan to transform their past into their history by coming to terms with it. That process in Lacanian terms is called resubjectivization, resubjectivizing your past. In Heideggerian terms, it has to do with ownership. It's about owning your shit. That's what we're fundamentally talking about here. You catch somebody in a bullshit situation, one of the things you might say to turn him, you say, fucking own it, man. You said that, you did that, fucking own it. Stop denying, stop pretending like that didn't happen. You said it, you did it, fucking own it so we can get on. That's an important moment in analysis. When you come to terms with your shit, you own it. That's one way to read this. Now, if we plug this into the logic of the dream, let's read the bottom of 44, this last paragraph, just after he introduces this famous Freudian dictum. This does not mean, as some execrable translation would have it, that the ego must dislodge the id. The ich is not the ego and the it is not the id. See how Freud, and in a formula worthy of resonance pre-Socratics, is translated into French. It is not a question of the ego in this soul ich werden. The fact is that throughout Freud's work, one must of course recognize its proper place. The ich is the complete total locus of the network of signifiers. Do you know what the complete and total locus of the network of signifiers is in Lacanian terms? That's right, it's the symbolic. So the 
S in this expression is the real, retrospect retrospectively seen from the perspective of the ich, which is this complete total networks of signifiers known as a symbolic. That is to say, the subject, that is what we are as subjects. The question of the subject is always one of etymology. What are you thrown under? Subjacere. Jacare is to throw and sub is under. What are you thrown under? What are you thrown into? What are you subject to? The symbolic. That is what we are subjects to. A network of signifiers known as the symbolic. Where it has always been, the dream. And then we get this wild turn. I love this move right here, by the way. The ancients recognized all kinds of things in dreams, including on occasion messages from the gods. Notice how he's also here arriving back to the topic of hermeneutics, where this very section started. Hermes, the messenger god. And why not? The ancients made something of these messages from the gods. The god messenger in between is Hermes, man, the origin of the word hermeneutics. And anyway, perhaps you will glimpse this in what I, say, I shall say later. Who knows? The gods may still speak through dreams. Personally, I don't mind either way. You can't, you can't make this up, man. This is great. He basically just said, I don't give a shit. What concerns us here is the tissue that envelops these messages. Notice his choice of terms here. Tissue that envelops envelope messages, the network in which on occasion something is caught. Perhaps the voice of the gods makes itself heard, but it is a long time since men lent their ears to them in their original state. It is well known that the ears are made not to hear with. This is some classic Lacanian shit. And I don't mean shit in the bad way. I mean shit as in the Midas touch. This is gold. I don't know what to do with it. We'll figure it out together. But the subject is there to rediscover where it was. And I want to emphasize that is a finding process, not a seeking process. Discovery is not searching. Discovery is finding. But the subject is there to discover where it was. I anticipate the real. I will justify what I have just said in a little while, but those who have been listening to me for some time know that I use quite intentionally the formula, the gods belong to the field of the real. Where it was, the ich, the subject, not psychology, but the subject, subject to the symbolic, not an internal intending thinking being as Descartes would have it. That's probably why Descartes popping up in here, but the subject as a being in the world that has been subjected to the defiles of the signifier, to the symbolic, to law and order. That is where the subject must come into existence. And there is only one method of knowing that one is there, namely to map the network. How interesting. Here is Lacan effectively in the fourth industrial revolution, the digital world, that of the network. Talking about mapping the network, 
interesting to read this in 2022. This turn into the dream is very interesting here. I am not surprised that we have arrived at 44 to four and 45 from pages 25 to 26, where Lacan is talking about the unconscious. And I'll leave it at that. That's a great question. I love that it really allows us in these final moments of tonight's discussion to get into some really nice Lacanian, dare I say, poetry. Don't forget Roman numeral eight. He fancies himself not a poet, but a poem. I had a follow-up question to that, if you have a second. You know it. Um, are you reading? I, I can't tell. Are you reading him as hermeneutic or anti-hermeneutic? Because I, I, I view Lacanian theory as like, as far as I understand it, which might not be very well, as anti-hermeneutic. Um, like you do justice to the patient um, and, and they're speaking through kind of this non-understanding of what's happening, of, of hearing the saying and the over-determination of what was said. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of curious about what's happening here. And also that he's brought up hermeneutics multiple times here. Yeah. Um, I think in this seminar, what's happening right now is he wants to pit the conjectural science of psychoanalysis as he understands it against the human science of hermeneutics. And I think that's what he's up to in the opening pages of this seminar. So he wants to say that like the problem with hermeneutics is it's constantly searching for the meaning of the stuff that scientists in their quest for objectivity bandy about. He says, why not look for something else? Not by searching for it, but for thinking where it can be found. And that's the job of psychoanalysis. It is tempting, if you're gonna align it with any of the human sciences, it's tempting to align it with hermeneutics. It's no coincidence that Paul Ricoeur was one of the greatest readers of Freud. Hermeneutics is also the, um, the, the mode of inquiry that early uh, biographers of Freud brought to bear on him. Now, you have to ask at that point, then, what kind of hermeneutics are we talking about? Traditionally speaking, in the field of hermeneutics, from Augustine forward, and that's really where it starts, St. Augustine is the first great thinker of hermeneutics. For him, it was about interpreting scripture. People in that day had started to wonder if they had misread the New Testament. They're like, fuck, man, we're getting torn up out here. When's Jesus coming? I thought he was just around the corner. Should I get another loaf of bread at the store? No, nah, baby, just get half because Jesus is coming. Everybody thought Jesus was on his way because that's what the New Testament was teaching folks. Meanwhile, persecutions occurred. St. Augustine rises up and says, listen, I'm going to tell you all how to read the Bible. I'm going to tell you about these four different levels of meaning for interpreting religious sacred texts. This is the origin of hermeneutics. It's where the art of persuasion shifts from the classical world, becoming not an art of speaking, but instead an art of listening. Rhetoric as an art of persuasion now becomes an art of interpretation with Augustine. That's partly why he's extremely important. That's the birth of hermeneutics. Reading 
profound texts and making sense of it now becomes more important than producing them, at least in this tradition. So hermeneutics begins as a sacred enterprise where you are trying to interpret the word of God, more or less. There's this other tradition, though, that comes up, not a hermeneutics of faith that you would extend from St. Augustine up through, I'd say, probably Kierkegaard, but instead you'd have a hermeneutics of what some have called suspicion. Traditionally, the hermeneutics of suspicion is one that looks at every text, not as a sacred object to be handled carefully, lest the word of God be lost, but this tradition of hermeneutics of suspicion treats every text and message as though it were a lie. Not a sacred truth encrypted, but a deceptive message, dangerous. So the hermeneutics of suspicion usually gets three names attached to it. You know them, Marx, Nietzsche, Freud. The reason why I bring up Freud here and the reason why I have Freud here is because I think that is an incorrect reading of Freud. Freud does not belong to the hermeneutics of suspicion. You see, here's the thing. Marx, he fits. Every time Marx receives a message in the mail, he wants to know how money is wrapped up in it. Where is capital? Show me where the money. Follow the money is a very hermeneutic of suspicion line from the Marxist vein. Follow the money. It's all about the money. Whatever that's on TV, man, you know there's somebody getting paid in the background. Follow the money. That's the hermeneutics of suspicion all of Marx. Nietzsche. It's all about power. There's always something behind the message where somebody is getting laid, not just paid, and so on and so forth. Freud, we come to Freud. Every message that the analyzan delivers in therapy, everything that comes out of the ego's mouth has hidden behind it a field of truth, of the unconscious. The dominant theme here is the same. The text is to be treated with suspicion and the truth is to be sought behind the lie. And I just don't think that that's what Freud is up to. Maybe it's because I read Lacan. Because the way Lacan treats the error, the slip, the speech of the analyzand, empty though it may be. And don't forget, emptiness is indeed the first song of analysis. Even and especially when the analyzand's speech is empty, the Lacanian's ears prick up. Maybe the truth is not behind the message, hidden, and the message is a lie. The trick is to figure out the ways that the truth pops up within the message not behind the script, but between its lines. That is the Lacanian move. And what that does is it effectively takes the fucking piece of trash that is the analyzans rambling dumbass account of what they did last weekend. 
and treats it like it's the motherfucking New Testament. This is the word of God. The Analyzan's speech in the Lacanian tradition is a sacred text to be handled with care. Freud and Lacan, they are not masters of suspicion. These are masters of faith. They belong in the tradition that extends from Augustine to Kierkegaard. If there is a hermeneutics at work in psychoanalytic theory and practice, a la Freud and Lacan, it is a hermeneutics of faith where the scraps of discourse that show up in the idiotic automated ramblings of these fucking humans that show up in your office and yammer on, I'm putting it this way for, for comic effect, but also to capture the truth, which is that there is counter-transference here. God, you wish they would just shut the fuck up. And yet they just go on and on. And you just want to tell them, you know what? This is bullshit. You know that this is about your mom. I'm just going to call it like it is. Now pay your copay and get the fuck out. But you don't. A good psychoanalyst in the Lacanian tradition handles this with care and doesn't give a lot of feedback, is a very careful listener, as though it's the greatest musical score in history. That is not a suspicious approach to the subject. That is a sacred approach to the subject. And I just cannot help but wonder. And in moments like these, I just, you know, let my mind flow around with this text. What if this is precisely what Lacan is doing on page 44 and 45 when he brings up the gods? What if this is actually what's happening? I don't know that it's the case. But I can't help but see a connection here to what he's doing with the ancients and their messages from gods. When the truth of the unconscious erupts in the slip, in the stammer of the patient or the analyzant's empty speech, I dare say it's a message from God. If we allow that mode of hermeneutics to be applied, Cody, my answer is yes. Psychoanalytic inquiry is a hermeneutic enterprise. But if we accept the old line about Freud being this master of suspicion, always treating the analyzant's speech as a fucking lie and always trying to peer behind it for truth. So you see, Marx looks at the message and always sees money. Nietzsche hears the message and always sees power. And in the stereotypical treatment of Freud, behind every message is sex. That was Freud's big dirty secret when he's traveling around trying to do this shit is everybody thinks, oh my gosh, how scandalous. Behind it all, it's just sex. Oh my God. Oh, I am turned on. Let's go, Victorian man. You see what I mean? Like there's this element in, in, in the reading of Freud that's just, that's just bullshit. It's not about sex. It's fundamentally about embodiment. That's what's up with psychoanalysis. And that's why I always say that when you get lost in this text, any of these texts, Get back to basics. The basics here is not sex. It's embodiment. The foundation for psychoanalytic theory and technique, a la Lacan, is human embodiment. 
And the fact that when humans are first born in that pre-edible stage we were describing, they, were, they require copious amounts of care from others. Psychoanalysis is the great tradition of care. And let me tell you, when you're caring for an infant, you don't approach them as though they're liars. You don't see them as sexual deviants. They're not thinking about money. Caregivers, when they're taking care of a dependent, they treat them as though they're sacred beings. This is what it means to be a good parent, to be a good friend, to be a good lover. The other is sacred. And I don't think that's a stretch. I think we can read that out of Lacanian psychoanalysis. So yeah, he starts by taking a big shit on hermeneutics in the opening pages. But what he's taking a shit on there is this um, desirous approach to meaning, where we're always looking for new meanings and better meanings and inexhaustible meanings. That's what he's doing in the opening rip on hermeneutics. It's that searching, restless approach to interpretation that bothers Lacan and would bother him about analysts who would treat the patient's speech as though I need to interpret this. I'm trying to interpret this. Don't forget, Lacanian psychoanalysis ends in the seminars appearing in the 1970s. Seminar 23, in fact, on the synthome. This is not about symptoms that can be interpreted and analyzed. The synthome for Lacan is the part of the analyzan's speech and action that cannot be analyzed. In other words, that completely thwarts interpretation, that defies the hermeneutic enterprise, whether driven by suspicion or faith. Where Lacan ends is in speech and action that defy analysis. That is what the synthome is. It is that point in the analyzan's speech that defies the symbolic apparatus known as interpretation. And if you have ears to hear, it's right where Lacan anticipates on page 45. But the subject is there to rediscover where it was. I anticipate the real. We've got about 10 more minutes. I'm happy to go any direction you want with this material. I mean, I have to say so far, this is terrific. Y'all are killing it on point. I'm really excited. I mean, we've got four more sessions after this. Um, and hey, let me tell you this. If you like how this is going, holler at your friends. We got room for more in here. Bring a friend. Shit, have a party. Set the laptop up. Let's talk. Make this a fireside chat, bring the whole family. I really want this to be a space where all are welcome. Whether you've read some Lacan, all of Lacan, no Lacan. Spread the word, we're here. 10 more minutes, y'all. What's got you thinking in all this material? 
Any other pages you want to check out? Good Lord, don't let me call out some pages. We'll be here. Until Can we go back to 25? I that he says that Orpheus is the analyst, and I'm I'm interested in like that position. Oh my God! Yes, that was something interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's on page twenty-five. Do you all know the story of Erudici and, and Orpheus? Orpheus? Okay, so, uh, okay, so here's the deal. My understanding. I mean, it's got some different interpretations of this thing. Okay, so first, let's find the passage before I freak out about this because I think this is a totally interesting moment in this in this thing. So if this is about loss. Lacan's working on the topic of loss. And then towards the bottom of page 25, he introduces this metaphor. To resort to a metaphor drawn from mythology, we have in Erodice twice lost, that's the important part, the most potent image we can find of the relation between Orpheus the analyst and the unconscious. So first things first, let's understand what's up with Orpheus and Erodice. So here's the deal in a nutshell. These two lovers, shit goes down. Erudici is drugged down into the depths of Hades and hell and all that shit. But Orpheus, because he's such a badass musician, he basically plays some songs that convinces the gods to let him have Erudice back. And here's the deal. Orpheus has to go down into the depths of hell. This is antiquity, so they didn't have hell. Don't forget, right? This, this Christianization of the story doesn't do it justice. He's got to go down into the depths. And he's allowed to bring his lady back from the dead so long as he is able to walk out of the depths of hell into the daylight of the living without turning back. This is where the story gets interesting. He lost her once to death, but he loses her again to life because as he leaves Hades, he exits and can't help but turn around to see his long lost lady, but she had not yet made it out. She was still behind him coming out of Hades and because he broke his promise, because he turned around, she was lost yet again. He lost her, and then he found her, and then he lost her again. Dealing with the unconscious is like fucking around with lost and found. That's the game Lacan is trotting out for us here. Now, in all interesting moments in Lacan, my advice, back up at least a paragraph and read the one just before the one that tripped your trigger. Now, as soon as so I'm, I'm scrolling up here on page 25, and I'm going to read the one right before it. Now, as soon as it is presented, ah, shit, what is the it that is presented? Now we got to talk about the paragraph just before that one. In brief, this it is a surprise, he says a few lines above by which the subject feels himself overcome, by which he finds both more and less than he expected. But in any case, it is in relation to what he expected of exceptional value. Now, this is interesting. 
because the surprise of exceptional value that he's talking about here is a failure, a slip, an accidental flash of wit, a parapraxis in the Analyzan speech. This element of exceptional value is the detritus of Analyzan's discourse. It's a surprise moment where you mean to say Pittsburgh and instead you say Titsburgh. That slip is a surprise. But Lacan's point is that it is of exceptional value to the analyst and by extension, the analyzant. Now, as soon as this surprise of exceptional value is presented, see where we are here on 25, this discovery and discovery is not a search, it is a find mission. You've heard this from me before. This discovery becomes a rediscovery. And furthermore, it is always ready to steal away again, thus establishing the dimension of loss. Now, if Pittsburgh for Pittsburgh is a rediscovery, it is a rediscovery at the level of a symptomatic expression of something in one's past relative to Pittsburgh. You see? So if, let's say, the subject had a traumatic experience with the breast, we can just imagine this stuff. It doesn't, doesn't require much from us. Let's say the subject had a traumatic experience with the breast. And we can draw this out in ways that are actually going to help us, I think, pretty tremendously in the coming work that we do. So let's say there is a traumatic encounter with the breast. The subject is just cruising along and all of a sudden the weaning process becomes a little bit traumatic. Don't think this is a breast with fur on it. This is like trauma. What happens is a signifier of that trauma gets repressed. It might not be the full experience. It might just be a sense of circles, circles, nipples, and so forth. Maybe the thing that becomes the repressed signifier of that traumatic event, that primal scene. Now, after that repression, the subject gets on with their life, goes through the process, living their life and so forth. All the while, underneath here, this signifier of a primal scene or traumatic event has continued at the level of the unconscious. So here's repression. Here's the unconscious, which holds the signifier of the repressed event. And then suddenly, while at the Goodwill store looking for a shirt, it's a cramped aisle and somebody passes by the subject and their nipple, hard from the morning chill, brushes up against the arm of the subject. And the subject suddenly feels completely disgusted, repelled by this moment. Now, you might imagine it could be just the opposite. What a tremendously fortuitous moment this is. I just brushed up against a breast. Good Lord, what a lucky person I am, if that's your thing. Here, though, instead of that occurring, there is a return of the repressed. 
And what happens in that moment is all of the cathected energy from this primordial traumatic event gets channeled and bam, it's right back in this explosive little moment at goodwill. Now the subject at this point has two choices. They can pretend that shit didn't happen and get back on with their life, which would in turn continue the very same dilemma that they were just in until the next time they encounter a breast. Or they can make the retrospective move of saying, why on earth was that such a traumatic event for me? If this forward moving arrow represents time unfolding at the level of lived experience, this backward looking arrow is the arrow of meaning. This is the coming to terms with. This is a retroactive process, like all meaning making. To come to terms with this event is to connect at the level of meaning this event to its predecessor, to what came before. You see where I'm going with this, right? This is Erudici's first death, and this is her second. The surprise that is discovered is a rediscovery because it points back to an original moment when the conditions of possibility for that surprise utterance of Pittsburgh as Pittsburgh were laid. This is why the, re the discovery here is always a rediscovery because it is connected retrospectively, if you're lucky, to this previous event. But here's the thing, that second, that first option where you just ignore that shit and you don't take the green arrow, this, however, is where the unconscious steals away with its symptomatic expression. This is when Hades takes back Eridice. Now we can read it. Now, as soon as it is presented, this discovery becomes a rediscovery because the return of the repressed is a rediscovery of some primal scene. And furthermore, it is always ready to steal away again, thus establishing a dimension of loss. This pathway out here is the pathway of loss. This green arrow here, baby, that's a game. To resort to a metaphor drawn from mythology, we have an Eridici twice lost, the most potent image we can find of the relation between Orpheus, the analyst, and the unconscious. Dear analyst, don't look too hard in your rear. Because if you turn around too quick, the unconscious will disappear just as quickly as it showed up. In this respect, if you will allow me to add a touch of irony, the unconscious finds itself, strictly speaking, on the opposite side of love, which as everyone knows is always unique. The expression, one lost, tend to be found again, finds its best application here. Amazing paragraph.
if there is another concept in Lacan that deserves a lot more attention, in addition to the one that, as we've talked about tonight, requires you to be able to count at least to three, it is the notion of love. And I'm not alone in this, actually. If you ask Alain Badiou what the two most tricky and important concepts are in Lacan, he'll say the same thing. Love and the one. Those are the biggies, according to him. And they're also, in some ways, really easy to understand. Those of you that have, have worked with me on love, you know this. Discontinuity, then is the essential form in which the unconscious first appears to us as a phenomenon, discontinuity in which something manifests as a vacillation. Now, technically the vacillation is the most important part here, but for our purposes of just understanding how the unconscious shows up, it shows up as a rupture, as a break in one speech. And that rupture is a discontinuity in the flowing empty speech of the analyzant. Now, if this discontinuity has this absolute inaugural character in the development of Freud's discovery, we must place it, as was later the tendency with, or must we place it, as was later the tendency with analysts against the background of a totality? The answer is no. And that's what happens on page 26 at the top in what I perceive to be the most important half page in the assigned readings for this first part of our lectures on seminar 11. Is the one anterior to discontinuity? You can hear Lacan trying to anticipate this question. Is this here and now of the all where everything flowed together in this uterine space and everything, you see me doing all this kind of like hippy dippy stuff right here. Was this what happened first before the paternal figure cut in and introduced the greatest discontinuity into the life of the child to date with the no of prohibition? Before this no split the child into not two, but three, was the child one whole being? I do not think so. And everything that I have taught in recent years has tended to exclude this need for a closed one. This is where we started tonight. It's appropriate that this is where we end, even if it takes us a little bit past the hour. This closed one, the same one of quiddity that would occupy modern science in its search for something like a pen to study, is a mirage to which is attached the reference of the enveloping psyche, a sort of double of the organism in which this false unity is thought to reside. You will grant me that the one that is introduced by the experience of the unconscious is the one of the split, of the stroke, of the rupture. Now you see what he's up to. The one that he's talking about here is not a sense of wholeness, cohesion. It's one of 
splitting, dihesion. The one that he's talking about is the same one that introduced this opening in my hand when the scalpel made its cut. That cut is the one in question. It is known in this tradition as the unary trait. The know of the father is the unary, the one trait that introduces a cut or a break. The one is first and foremost for Lacan, a scratch. The first signifier, if you ask Lacan, was probably a hunter that took a bone and etched a little scratch in it to represent the kill. That cut or etching looked like the number one. It was a notch taken out of a bone of an antler. That notch is the one of the split, of the stroke, of the rupture. This is the first signifier. The first signifier is the notch in the bone that speaks for the kill of the past, of the hunter's kill, of an animal long since digested and no longer around, nor need it be around because we now have a signifier for that referent. And this is where we'll end. At this point, there springs up a misunderstood form of the um, the un of the unbewusste, the unconscious in German. Let us just say that the limit of the unbewusst, the unconscious, is the unbegriff, not the non-concept, but the concept of the no, of the non of, as Lacan puts it here, lack. We're on page 26 of an almost 300 page seminar. And we've already got one of those passages that you could spend, oh, I don't know, two weeks between this Wednesday and next working on. That unbegriff, that ungrasping, that is not the non-concept. It's not literally translated from the German as the ungrasping or the unconceptualizing of something. It is instead the concept of the no that introduced an opening where the experience of lack could be enjoyed. Psychoanalysis is a science and it is not a science of objects. It is a science of openings and its primary concepts are concepts of the no, concepts of lack. That's what he's getting at here. If there is a one in question, it is the one that opens up the distance between two entities and creates a space, a groove 
into which something like human desire can grow. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.